You may be seated. So big question, it's a question that if it's not being asked out loud, it's in the minds of a lot of people in our world today. How in the world or where can I find happiness? The Bible has a few things to say about that, and so we're going to look at that today in Psalm chapter 1, I invite you to turn to Psalm 1 in whatever form of the Bible you brought with you today. The good old days, I used to hear my mom and dad talk about the good old days, and they used to talk about those times when they didn't have two nickels to rub together, and yet they had such wonderful, fond, happy memories of some of those times. One of the apocryphal stories that used to come down every Thanksgiving and Christmas when I was around the table and my parents would talk about the good old days was about one time, it was the first year my mom and dad were married, and that was back in 1952 when they were married. They were actually married then for 50 years together before dad went to heaven. And they didn't have much money. They were going to school, they were going to get their master's degree at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And dad was working a part-time job, riding his bicycle six miles to go work in a creamery. And they said, let's put a limit on what we can spend for each other this Christmas and see who can come up with the most creative gift Let's put the limit at 50 cents. Now, can you imagine trying to spend 50 cents on a gift? Now, granted, this is back in 1952. Still, that wasn't a lot of money. So I can't remember what my mom got, and I'm not sure she could even remember what she bought, but she remembers what my dad bought. He bought her a goldfish. (laughs) And they went home and put it in a mason jar, and they had a pet for 50 cents. Mom said, you won. Hands down, he won for the most creative gift. But they remember with fondness things that made them happy and it had nothing to do with the trappings of wealth. And that's when Joy and I started to reminisce a little bit. It was not too long ago when we talked about Fort Worth because I went to the same place that I swore up and down I would never go, which is to seminary where my dad went. (laughs) Be careful what you tell God you won't do. And I wound up there getting a master's degree. We had not much money when we were going to school as well. Joy was working full time. I married her because she had such great earning potential. (laughs) And she was helping put her hubby through. She got her PhD degree. And I decided to take us out for a big date because I was working part time about 12 hours a week at, at a Sears store in the catalog department. Hello. May I help you? And what color would you like that towel to be? Yes, let me get that order for you. I did that several nights a week, trying to earn a little extra spending money. And so I took her on a date. We walked three blocks to the snow cone stand. And that was our date. And we were filled with excitement because she was looking like this, because we were getting ready to have Katie, our firstborn, in just a few weeks. And we were talking about how we had come to this stage in our journey, and we just loved those snow cones because it was a hot afternoon. That was a great memory. It had nothing to do with wealth or the trappings of wealth. It all had to do with being connected somehow. It was communion. It had something deeper. It ran far deeper than just the surface level stuff. Here's the thing that the world shares with us that's a lie. The world tells us that it's all about wealth and it's all about the stuff, the the things like the toys or the bigger houses or the newer car or whatever so that you can be in the in crowd. You know, because if you're in the in crowd, if you're wearing the right clothes that have the big labels that has, you know, all the designer names on it, then you're cool. 
And God's method seems to be very different from what the world's method is in terms of trying to show us where happiness comes from. Fortunately, God doesn't look at that outward stuff at all. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I'm glad because I don't think most of us fit in the the pretty people club or the in club or the really super wealthy club. I mean, you look around at this room today, don't point fingers, except for perhaps Joy and me, there are not that many good-looking people in this world. <laughs> can you tell I'm kidding? I hope you can tell I'm kidding. I, I have never thought of myself as being, you know, that, the guy that would stand in the window at the, the tuck shop and attract a lot of attention. We don't fit into that club, but that's a good thing because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. Here's what the world offers. They say you need to look at the outward, at the physical, and at the temporary, that's where they're telling us to go look for happiness. God, it flips that completely around. He says, no, I wanna look at the inward. I want you to focus on the spiritual. And what you're gonna look for is eternal. Can you see how opposite these two things are? That's what Psalm chapter one says for us. It paints the whole picture for us. It sets the tone for everything else in every one of the Psalms and in the wisdom literature, including a lot of the Proverbs. Psalm one sets the tone for this dichotomy between what the world offers, this kind of counsel, versus this other kind of counsel. He says that if there's one kind of a person and he goes after what the world offers, it's gonna end in destruction, it's not gonna end well for that person, but the person who goes hard after God, who loves to meditate on his word day and night, that's the person who's gonna find true happiness. There are three principles that we can draw right out of this simple, rather short psalm of Psalm chapter one. Happiness is, in fact, possible. Happiness is not circumstantial, it doesn't depend on our circumstances which is what the world will tell us to do. And happiness is not found directly. We'll unpack these just a little bit. Happiness is possible. Notice how it starts out right there in that song. It says, blessed or happy, fulfilled, satisfied is the person who goes after God, who does all these other things. The other person has the opposite of that. There's this great dichotomy going back and forth in that song. So where do you fall in this category? Well, of course happiness is possible. Of course it is. Or, eh, I don't know, maybe some of the time. Or maybe, eh, only for some people. I've never been really, truly happy. Or, oh, boy, that seems awfully idealistic. You must be trying to sell me something if you think that happiness is possible. Or, this is completely wishful thinking. It's bunk. I don't believe it at all. So where do you fall in that category? Follow the world's counsel, and usually we tend to start working our way from the top to the bottom. I remember being pretty idealistic around in high school and then in college. And I used to love to listen to David Gates and Bread. He had these idealistic songs. One of them was called Diary, about this man who found a diary underneath a tree, and he started reading about himself. And he thought, oh, she didn't want to say this out loud, but she's talking about me. She's found the love of her life. And he's thinking, I've discovered this wonderful thing. And so then he says, oh, she wouldn't want to show that because she's just being shy or whatever, and she's just so humble. And then he found out, oh, the diary wasn't about me. (laughs) She was writing about that other guy. And then he's so idealistic that he says, but now I'm gonna wish for them all the good things they can find. And you go, oh, what a wonderful thing, how selfless. And I was listening to that one day, and one of the girls that was in the college area there, passed by and heard me listening to that, and she goes, kind of idealistic, isn't it? 
And I said, yeah. I love idealism. Idealism is great. And then you live for a while and you get stomped on for a while and you see what the world can really be like for a while and you start working your way down from the top and you go, well, maybe we're happy some of the time. Or then you start to think, well, maybe for some people, maybe they can find some happiness, but I don't know. And then you think like that girl who was probably a junior in college when I was a freshman back when I loved David Gates. Seems idealistic to me. And then finally you get so many cynical people in the world that they think, this is wishful thinking. It's a delusional thought process to think that anybody can be truly happy for eternity. That's wishful thinking. That's kind of what happens. And if you ask any of the wealthiest people in America today, chances are they've worked their way down to the bottom too because some of the most cynical people are the wealthiest people. And they're not very happy. Happiness is kind of like a mirage. When we would drive out west, some of you have done this. I know you guys go to Utah once in a while. You can be looking out for miles ahead and all of a sudden you see this little mirage out there, the heat waves on the highway, and you think what appears to be maybe a lake in the distance or some kind of a vehicle or maybe it's a building, maybe it's a service station, and you're thinking, you know, we ought to come upon that thing in just a few miles. And so you go hard at it, you go full tilt straight ahead toward that thing that you thought was there, and by the time you get to where you thought it was, it's moved and it's a whole bunch of miles down a little bit further. You never get there. It's a mirage, it's a mist, it's just a bunch of heat waves. And that's kind of what happiness is to a lot of people. If you go hard after happiness, it just dissipates. The psalmist says, however, that happiness actually is possible. He uses that word. Blessed is the person who follows after God's ways and meditates on his word day and night. You know what some are thinking, well, if that's possible, how come there are so many people in the world who are not happy? because they're looking in the wrong places. They're looking at the world's criteria and they're going after all the surface level stuff, they're going for wealth, they're going for temporary. They're not looking for what God is telling us in Psalm 1 and in the rest of the Psalms and in all the rest of the New Testament that we ought to be looking in. Can somebody name for me what that tree is? Some of you who might have grown up perhaps in South Texas maybe. It's a... Right. <laughs> Jesse got it, and he even pronounced it correctly. Say it louder for us. Palo verde. Palo verde. It means green is verde. Palo verde tree. That one that's the tallest one is a palo verde tree. And if you're going along in the desert and you're driving along, or if you're riding your horse along, been through the desert on a horse with no name, then when you get to this, all of a sudden you see this strip of green, what does that indicate? Ah, there must be some water somewhere. And you're looking at this dry riverbed and you're thinking, there isn't any water around here. Well, there must be, and there must be an aquifer underneath that dry riverbed because these Palo Verde trees don't require a ton of water, but they'll grow so big and provide great shade and things like that. And so it's an indicator that there must be some water there somewhere. And look what the psalmist says for us here in Psalm 1. He said, that person who's going hard after God, the person who is meditating on his law day and night, the person who finds joy and contentment in God and his law and in his word, is like a tree planted by the water. It's not planted in the dry riverbed, it's planted by the water next to a river, a flowing stream of endless uh, supply of water so that the roots go down deep and it's constantly being filled with water. That's that person who's meditating on God's word. Everyone, now who said this? This sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
This is not from the psalm, however. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Remember who said that? Jesus, he was talking to a woman. She was at the well. He asked her for a drink. She let down the bucket, got him a drink, starts talking to him. And he says, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see the eternal in there? It's not temporary. This is an eternal kind of water. Jesus is that living water. Something we need to be preaching about now and then because of the name of our church. Our happiness does not come to us from what happens to us. It's not circumstantial. If we based all of our happiness on circumstances, we of all people would be the most miserable because even people who follow Christ are gonna encounter all kinds of trials. It's been promised to us. And so if we're gonna be happy, we can't wait for the circumstances to pour in all the good things that happen to us. I have to put a little caveat here and say, there are some people preaching today that an indication of God's blessing is that everything is going well in your life. The Bible just doesn't teach that. You can read the whole book of Hebrews and you can see very clearly that that's not the case. Now, we in Phoenix lived in the desert there uh, was very hard caliche ground there. It was the kind of clay that the sun would bake. And if somebody said, you need to go and dig a ditch there, I had to do that occasionally. My dad wanted to dig a ditch because we had to replace a water line in front of our house. And you get the shovel out there and it's like, king. Wow, that's hard. And you have to literally put a hose of water on it for a couple of days and soften it up before you can actually get in there. Otherwise, you're using a pick and shovel because it hardens like clay that's been fired. I mean, it's so hard. And yet, in a little flower bed behind our house in Phoenix, in that desert, we had these mint leaves that just started to flourish. It was like a miracle. All these mint leaves, and mom would make uh, sun tea. She'd put this great big gallon glass jug out on the back and let the sun, you know, cook it. And she'd put the mint leaves in there. And oh boy, that just quenched our thirst like nothing else. But we wondered, what in the world is going on? This is a magic mint leaf bush because it was just flourishing. And my dad was thinking, and one night it came to him. He thought, aha. <laughs> There must be a source of water there, and there was never a source of water there before, which means we've probably got a leak. And he <laughs> dug down a little bit, and sure enough, there was a pinhole leak that was why we had this magic bush growing in our backyard. <laughs> I remember the day he uncovered that leak. He got very wet, <laughs> because once he uncovered it, it sprayed everywhere. But there's a source of water there. Dennis. Spickenagel is an example of somebody who's not dependent on his circumstances, and yet he is a happy individual. I have visited him often in this last month when he's been in the hospital, he had his left leg amputated, he's had a lot of ups and downs, one day he'd be doing great and then the next day there'd be some other little setback and he's just been up and down. But every time I go in there, he finds a way to be happy and he, laugh, he has that wonderful laugh. You know, he's so subtle with that laugh. <laughs> And one of the nurses came in one day and she actually had to close the door. She goes, can I just shut this door here? We're trying to have rounds out here in the hallway. <laughs> and, and she said, nobody told me that this was the party room. You know why she could say that? Because here's this guy who's been through everything imaginable, so much pain, starting with over a month ago when he was writhing in pain from a nerve that was going down his leg, until he is still finding a way to lighten everybody's mood when they come in there, despite his circumstance. So it's not about circumstances with him. He's tapped into the root. 
His roots go way down deep, and he's tapped into the source of what true happiness comes from, and it's not circumstantial. The Bible gives a couple of different analogies. There's the tree by, by the river, like a tree planted by the river. And then there's the vine and the branches, that somehow people who follow Christ are grafted into the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do no thing if you're not tapped into the vine. So you can see that there's something about being connected to the source, right? That's the purpose of these two analogies. We need to be connected to the source of life and happiness. Trees and vines, however, will still suffer wounds. We see that in Psalm 1. There are still possibilities that we're going to have those seasons where we're not going to bear much fruit, where there's going to be scorching weather, and where we may be suffering a little bit. But, it says, their leaves will never wither. What does that indicate? We don't die out. God still is putting his life-giving sap through us or the water, the living water coming up from the source of that, even though we may suffer for a while. And we do suffer. In all this, 1 Peter 1.6 says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, if you look up the syntax and find out what he's really saying there, he could have said, you know, you were happy for a while when you first met Christ and you understood that he died for your sins, that he was buried for three days, and that he resurrected to conquer death once and for all. You were happy, but now you're going through all kinds of grief, and it's okay if you're really terribly sad. He's not really saying that. There are two present tense sentences going on in this phrase. You are greatly rejoicing because of the eternal satisfaction that God gives us in Christ, while at the same time it indicates you are currently suffering in all kinds of trials. That's the thought process around Peter. You look up a whole bunch of different translations and you start to piece together what he's really talking about. He says, yeah, yeah, you're gonna suffer like you're suffering now. That doesn't mean he's gonna take away that rejoicing that you've been doing. He's not gonna remove the joy from your life just because you're going through some trials. In fact, he goes on just a little bit later in that same passage, he goes on to say that it's gonna be that how you react to the suffering is gonna bear fruit and show that you're genuine in your faith, that people will be able to see that like people have been able to see in Dennis at the hospital. This guy, who looks like he's a real hoot, he is a real hoot, his name is Ed Litton, he and I did some stand-up comedy in college back at Grand Canyon College in Phoenix together. He used to do stand-up comedy. And uh, we did a Siskel and Ebert introduction to one chapel service one time where we were Siskel and Ebert, the two people that would do uh, criticisms for different movie theater, movies and stuff. He's a great guy. He's a pastor down in Mobile, Alabama now. But Ed Litton went through an awful time of grief. We found out just a few years ago because we got reconnected through Facebook and we were reading some of the posts on Facebook and we thought, what, no, this can't be. His wife, Tammy, who was good friends of ours, because I went not only to college with him, but he was also right across the street, neighbor in seminary in Fort Worth. So we were really good close friends. Tammy uh, played the oboe in symphony and she was such a talented lady and she led the children's choirs and the churches where he would preach. And Tammy was killed in a head-on collision in Atlanta, Georgia. And we were just shocked. We were just grief-stricken. And I thought, no, it can't be. This is a joke, right? And so we finally got in touch with Ed to find out what happened. What's going on? He said, well, it's actually been some time. And some of these are just popping up again. He says, it's been a couple of years since Tammy passed away. And I said, I'm so sorry. And I'm sorry that I didn't know because we could have reached out to you. And he said, 
It's all right. He said, and this is what stuck with me. He said, our family has been through a time of great grief, but it's been marked by great grace as well. He said, there have been so many times when God showed up, even in tears and times of just dread that we had to walk another day into doing the things we had to do to surround her funeral and all that stuff. It was an awful time, but God kept showing up and there was such a sense of underlying stability and joy that we cannot explain apart from Jesus Christ. And he meant that. Several years later, he met another lady who had lost her husband, so the two of them had been uh, without a spouse for quite some time, and they seemed to hit it off and they've been re- they're both remarried, but to each other, you know what I'm trying to say. They got married to each other, and their kids are completely 100% in favor of that. It's been a wonderful, joyful thing to see Ed start to move through that stage of grief that was still marked with lots of grace. Helen Keller said, although the world is full of suffering, it's also full of overcoming of it. That's kind of what Peter is trying to say in that passage. That's exactly what the psalmist is saying. There's all kinds of overcoming the suffering that we will encounter, and as we do that overcoming, we're proving that our faith is genuine, and other people are noticing that, and they're drawn to that kind of faith in other people because they're drawn to the Christ who's the source of that faith. True contentment goes so deep. It goes deep enough to see you through even the greatest of our grief times together. I can personally attest to that. Joy and I have been through some extremely... uh, Difficult times where there's just so much grief and yet God just buoys us up and he constantly does that. That doesn't mean you're pretending to smile, you know, smile, when da 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 No, that's just delusional. That's actually unhealthy psychologically to put on a face and pretend that everything's okay. We need to feel grief when we feel grief. Jesus felt grief. When he was walking from, Beth, or from yeah, Bethany over toward where he wasn't in Bethany. Where was he when he was walking to where Martha and, and uh, Mary? I'm getting off script. Anyway, Jesus waits for three days because he finds out that Lazarus is sick. And then he starts walking toward where they're staying. And Martha comes out and says, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. She wasn't pretending. She wasn't going, Lord, because you're here. I know everything's fine. We're going to put on a face. You know, praise God. Everything's okay. She was beaten on Christ's chest, I imagine. Lord, if you had only been here. I mean, she was grieving. You can tell there's such grief there. And Christ, who knows that he has the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, weeps out of empathy for them. So yes, we can feel grief when we have grief. We should feel it. It doesn't mean that we're bad people or we don't have any faith. It means that we're people of faith who do grieve, and that's okay. But we can trust that if we're tapped into the source of that living water, he's gonna give us a chance for those leaves to get green again, even though they're starting to get a little bit brown, but they're not gonna wither, they're not gonna die out. We'll never die because he's giving us the source of life to get us through that grief time. It means getting down deep to the source while your heart is breaking. In fact, it's during the trials, the worst trials of my life that's forced me to my knees in prayer and into God's word, I probably wouldn't have gotten to know him as intimately had it not been for those drought times and the times of trial and grief. Doesn't mean that I'm praying for him to send more drought. You know, hey, bring it on, Lord, I wanna grow in you, so send me some more trials. I don't really care for him. But I can look back at him and be grateful because I know that he met me there because I was tapped into the source. 
there was a comparison that I read about, and I saw a lot of this back in Arizona because we'd have a lot of irrigation. And they'd have these irrigation ditches and people would put those pipes over there and siphon the water up over into the fields and they would just flood the fields so they could grow cotton. And there was a fellow who had a grove of trees and he had irrigated his trees with a great big pump that would pump water out of the well into the irrigated places. And yet one of the pumps broke. So he was without water and it was a hot, scorching summer. And so all of a sudden his trees were starting to just look pretty bad. But he noticed that a friend of his who lived a couple of miles down the road, he had trees, he didn't have any irrigation, but his trees were doing just fine, thank you very much. And he asked him, he said, what happened to your trees? What are you doing differently? He said, well, it's not what I'm doing now, it's what I did when they were young. I actually purposefully withheld water from them when they were young for up to two weeks at a time. When I would notice that their leaves were just starting to turn a little bit brown, then I would give them some more water so that it forced the roots to go down deep looking for water. So my trees have deeper roots than your trees. Dun, 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 dun. Happiness shows up when we're seeking something even more important. This is that other principle. We can't go hard after happiness and find happiness. It's like that mirage on the highway. You never read, blessed is the one who seeks after blessedness. <laughs> it doesn't happen. In fact, the harder you go after happiness, the more elusive it becomes. It just dissipates. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. It's a both or neither proposition. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then you're gonna get happiness thrown in and you get them both. But if you seek only after happiness first and you're putting the other below that, you get neither. He says you've got to seek after his righteousness and then God throws in the happiness as well. So why is it that we cheat now and then? How, how come that we find ourselves stepping outside of God's counsel and not meditating on it? And what do I mean by that? Well, you compromise. Let's say the guy wants the girl. We see this in the movie all the time. The guy wants the girl, but he's gonna have to compromise. So he goes, ooh, man. You know, I'm gonna compromise. I'm gonna do things that I know go against my morality. Why? Because I wanna be happy. And if I go with my morality, she's gonna dump me and I'm not gonna be happy. And so what are you doing? You're elevating happiness above seeking after the kingdom and his righteousness. And so you do that thing instead and you compromise and you're going after happiness. And where does it lead? There's no happiness. So you have to seek after righteousness first. If I tell that truth, I might lose my job and I won't be happy. But if I tell the truth and I lose my job and I'm doing seeking after God and his kingdom, do I really trust that God will buoy me up and take care of my needs? Yes. My dad did that a couple of times. He lost a couple of jobs because he spoke truth and the boss didn't like that because the boss was trying to cheat. But God took care of him. He got him a better job after that. We need to put God's kingdom first and then happiness shows up. That's why we choose wrongly is because we're elevating happiness above God's kingdom. This guy's name is Blake Mankin. He grew up in a very affluent section of Houston, Texas. He said that's where everybody drove, drove brand new Lexus cars. And he said he would call it a middle class high school the way he was describing it. I thought my high school was middle class. We didn't drive brand new Lexuses. <laughs> I would describe his neighborhood as being affluent. I mean, really wealthy. And he said, I started to see things differently after I took a mission trip because he's a believer, he went to a mission trip in an area where there were people who were literally living out of things made out of garbage. 
He went to places where people were bathing in the middle of the street because they didn't know any better and that was the only place there was a little source of water and we think, well, you know, okay, that's where we can do it, so let's just do it. He said, there were smells that I'd never smelled before, there were sights I'd never seen before and I thought, this is just wrong. And he said, I started wrestling with God a little bit in my spirit and I thought, God, why could you allow this kind of stuff to happen? And God kept turning it around because I was meditating on his word and God was saying, how come you're allowing that to happen? If you're my agent in the world, why aren't you doing something about it? And so he started pondering that, and he went back to his high school, and his senior year, he did something that started kind of a revolution, at least in that area. He said they used to do something to vote for their homecoming king and queen. They would sell flowers. Some of you may have seen that done in schools. They would sell little uh, chrysanthemums or whatever, and you would buy a flower, and that was your vote for the person. You'd buy a flower for so-and-so, and then you'd give it to your girlfriend or whatever. But he said, all that flower money is going where? You know, maybe it's going back into the student council money for a big dance or something like that. He said, why couldn't we do something to make a difference in some people's lives? So he proposed that they do something different. And the students got around it. They liked the idea. They took it to the principal and the vice principal and they took it to, and and it grew and it became adopted. They sold little buttons that said, hope for Africa. You know, the kind of buttons with a pin on it and you can stick it in your clothing somewhere. And the one who sold the most buttons was crowned king or queen. Okay, a little different way of doing that. And then they donated all the money from that to an organization that would dig wells in southern Uganda, or southern Sudan, I'm sorry. And they donated $6,000 raised from doing that, and this organization dug two new wells in southern Sudan, and it's now providing clean drinking water for 10,000 people. That's because Blake realized we're trying to seek after happiness in all the wrong places. And all the students around that are driving these new cars, they're given a new car when they're 16 years old, they're not happy. In fact, they're running from one pursuit of happiness after the other. And that probably means that our constitution is not really scriptural. It's not a pursuit of happiness. It should be the pursuit of righteousness. If we're pursuing God and if we're tapping in deep, especially through his word, and meditating on that word day and night, if we're reveling in the law of the Lord like David does, and like the psalmist, that may have been Song of Solomon, or his son Solomon who wrote that first psalm, that's neither here nor there. If we're doing those things, God's gonna bring happiness, and it surprises us, it will catch up with us. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book by that title, Surprised by Joy. Kind of what happened to me in my life. But in his case, he was talking about somebody else also named Joy, and yet there were some trials going on, and he discovered that when he pursued God and his righteousness, God snuck up on him, and in times when he least expected it, he found himself welling up with contentment and fulfillment. That's true happiness. So here's the thing. It is possible. Just as the psalmist says, it is possible. It's not circumstantial. If you found yourself grieving because of circumstances, that's okay, feel the grief, go with that. Feel it deeply. We have feelings, it's okay to feel them, but just understand that momentary lightheartedness or amusement is not the same as deep-rooted happiness. You can't find happiness by seeking it, you can only find it by going hard after God and meditating on his word day and night. When we do that, He'll sneak up on us and all of a sudden we find ourselves being so joyful because it's the joy that lasts forever because of the living water. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you continue to teach us things that 
sometimes sneak up on us. And sometimes we think we've known it, but we tend to slip away from it. We develop bad habits and then we slide back into those bad habits. And I thank you for the reminders that we don't have to listen to the lies of the world, that we can listen to you and we can hear you more clearly through your word. And as we go after you and sink our roots deep down into your word, you'll fill us up. Sometimes when we least expect it, you'll fill us up to overflowing with true contentment. And as we go through times of trial, other people will see happiness bubbling up from somewhere in us and they'll have to ask, what is different about that person? I pray that every one of us as disciples of Christ will continue to tap into the vine, to tap into that deep well of living water so that other people will see the difference in our life and want what we've got because what we've got is Jesus Christ, the source of our salvation and of our happiness and contentment. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.